Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Asman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sotat, daf Mem Aleph, page 41. Well, we continue to have some discussion based on the last Mishnah about some of the halakhot of how the Torah scroll was read in the temple um, and a concern about if you bring out multiple Torah scrolls, it shouldn't be read by one person uh, so that we don't think there's a mistake in the Torah, and that's why the Torah had to be switched to a different scroll. Again, and I think you'll agree with me that this sounds like Masachat Brachot material, and it's interesting that it appears here. Um, but we have a nice mission here that I'm gonna read, and then Anne, you're gonna do some of the Gemara uh, on it. Um, and it basically says, Parshat HaMelech Ketzad. So it basically wants to know, what, how do you read the Parshat HaMelech? And so what this is, is this is talking about Hakel. Hakel was the mitzvah that would take place at the end uh, of the of the you know seven year shemitah cycle, so this actually takes place in the eighth year, and it essentially was that the king, everybody, and this includes, unlike Aliyat Haregel of the commandment to go up to the temple during the holidays, which really only uh, pertains to men. Hakel was actually for men, women, and children. So the entire nation would go up, and the king would read a portion from the Torah. Uh, in front of the entire nation. And so they're asking how this actually worked. So at the conclusion, at the end of the first day of the festival of Sukkot, um, uh, on the eighth, Bashmini on the eighth, meaning the eighth year, after the end of the uh, Shemitah year. So this would basically take place on day two of Sukkot. They would make a wooden platform for the king in the temple courtyard, and he would sit on it. And here they quote the pasuk that talks about Hakel in Devarim, chapter 31, verse 10. And the Gemara will get into some discussion. That will basically be the first uh, thing the Gemara will discuss. How do they know exactly when Hakel took place? And why is the pasuk so detailed exactly about when the timing is? Um, Chazan HaKneset, so the, you know, uh, here it means sort of, not the Chazan the way we think of it, but sort of like the person in charge of the synagogue, Notel Sefer Torah, takes a Torah scroll, the note now L'Rosh HaKneset, and gives it to the head of the, of the, of the synagogue. V'Rosh HaKneset, L'Skan, and the head of the synagogue gives it to the deputy, again, this was, would be a Kohen, V'Haskan, L'Kohen Gadol, and then the deputy, uh, Kohen would give it to the to the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Gadol not Nalamelch, and the Kohen Gadol would give it to the king. The Hamelch Omeidim Mekabel, the king would stand um, and would get the Torah scroll. And again, there will be a lot of discussion uh, about the fact that he it says he stands. Was he allowed to sit? Are you allowed to sit in the Beit Hamidash? Um, so pay attention to that discussion in the Gemara. The Kore Yoshev, and then he reads it while he's sitting. Okay. And now we have a historical uh, piece here who we've the, about Agrippus. And Agrippus has come up before. Um, and just to do a little bit of a who's who here, right, this is Agrippa I. This is worth just to like Google and spend a little bit of time. But he's basically Herod the Great's grandson. Um, and um, he, uh, he was very, so he's the king of Judea, but he's sort of half Roman, half Jewish because his, Mother is the daughter of Salome, um, but uh, he he actually feels very affection towards the Jewish people and really considers himself uh, in a way to be Jewish. Um, and, you know, this takes place during the time of Caligula and Claudius. 
So there's a lot of, uh, you know, history that you could get into here, uh, which I'm not going to go into because I don't know it as well as I should. Um, but honestly, this is just something that's worth, um, that is worth uh, reading about. Um, but it's a very interesting sort of political time uh, for the Jews themselves. And it's always interesting to see, uh, you know, where this sort of, uh, you know, falls in, where you, um, uh, you know, where you sort of see this interplay between a story in the Mishnah or the Gemara that has to do with, you know, historical figures where we have sort of a secular history about them as well. And so the story goes as follows. Agrippus HaMelech Ahmad Vikibel Bekara Omed. So Agrippus, and this is talking about he participated in Hakel. He arose, received the Torah scroll, and read from it while standing. Now, again, he lives from about 10 BCE till 44, right? Vishibhuhu Chachamim. And the Chachamim praise him. But when he read the part of the Pasuk, right, from Devarim chapter 17, verse 15, where he says, You should not appoint a foreigner over you. In other words, your king should really be Jewish. His eyes uh, flowed with tears because, again, he's a descendant really of Herod and is not really uh, 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 fully Jewish. Amru Lo, they said to him, and so the whole nation says to him, fear not, Agrippus, you're our brother, you're our brother. Now, the Gemara is, when you read this initially from the Mishnah, uh, you think, wow, this is such a beautiful story. Um, you know, we'll see in the Gemara, it, 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 this is actually interpreted in a very, very different way. And the Gemara gets into a very, very interesting discussion based on the way, and I, I know you're going to get to. But I think it's interesting to see how, like, you could read a Mishnah and sort of interpret a story one way, and then the Gemara is going to take the story to mean something totally different. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, So what I didn't mention before is, and now because we were going to get to it in the Mishnah, is the Mishnah is, uh, you know, now lists for us, what does the king actually read, right? So he reads from Elu HaDevarim, which is the beginning of Devarim, um, until Shema, which is Devarim uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 4. Then he reads uh, the paragraphs of Shema. Then he reads from Devarim chapters, uh, chapter 11, verses 13 through 21. Then Devarim chapters 14, to, uh, verses 22 through 29. Then in Devarim chapter tw uh, 26, verses 12 through 15. Uh, Devarim chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And then Devarim chapter 8. So there's actually a lengthy amount uh, that he would read here. And then the blessings that the high priest would say on Yom Kippur, then the king would recite here at Hakel. But he gives a blessing about the festivals, right? Instead of saying, asking about for forgiveness, because forgiveness is what you would do on Yom Kippur. And here it's Sukkot. And so he would mention something about the festivals themselves. So, you know, Hakel is actually, it's a very, very beautiful mitzvah. Um, and, you know, today in modern Israel, uh, they do do, uh, actually it was Hakel this particular year because we had completed a Shemitah cycle. And they do do something that involves, you know, some of the dignitaries from the government of Israel. Not everyone thinks that this is something that you should do, but it's symbolic of, you know, uh, you know, Jews having sovereign over their own land. Um, but again, so I think this is a great Mishnah because it teaches us about a ritual that I think many of us don't know a lot about, 
a ritual that has now been adopted in the modern state of Israel. And we have this really interesting historical piece about Agrippas, which again, uh, I, to me at least, the thing to pay attention to is that the mission, when you, re- at least the way I initially read the Mishnah, it sounds very beautiful and heartwarming, and the Gemara is going to take it uh, to mean something totally different. So that's my cue. Um, yeah, I'm going to pick up the Gemara here on Amud Bet, where it really talks about exactly this part, where it says, Vishabhua Chachamim, as you've said, right, where, in fact, the sages praise, right, that's the description there, and the Gemara really turns it on its head. Vishabhua Chachamim, Shibhu Miklal Dishapir Avad. So the Gemara asks, from the fact that they praised him, like, does that mean that he was behaving well, right? That he that he did Shapir, that he did... Well, that he did that he did the right thing, right? That's the point here. Are we going to assume? Are we going to infer from their praise that in fact he acted appropriately? So the Gemara sharpens this question with a statement from Rav Ashi, where Rav Ashi says that when we're talking about a nasi, who, um, who who is willing to give up on the honor that is due to him, right? Then you say, that in fact, he has relinquished that, that honor. He doesn't, he doesn't get it because he, he gave it up. He was willing to, and it worked. But for a king who gives up on his, his kavod, his honor, it doesn't work. He, he can't give up the, the honor that is due him. He is the king. And we have a verse to back this up, that when you put a king upon you, meaning over you, then you can't ever, as much as the king can say, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, it doesn't matter, the people still owe him that kavod. Right? The idea that you should, when it says the king will be over you, it means that the awe of him, the the being struck by awe, right? That's what that means there. The fear will be over you in that part of what it means for a king to be a king is for the people to have this measure of distance and awe and so on and in the honor that they give the king. Mitzvah shani. So the Gemara explains and says, no, the fact is that when the king gives up his honor for the sake of a mitzvah, so then there's no lack of honor to him in that regard because it's for the sake of the mitzvah. The Mishnah goes on, right? This meaning the Gemara brings the citation from the Mishnah, namely that when Agrippa comes to that verse, meaning that you cannot appoint a foreigner over you, so we have a statement here in the name of Rabbi Natan. So we're talking about, again, we're talking about a case where Agrippa himself, right? Agrippa is in this like quasi-category because on the one hand, he's a king, but he's a king of a king. He's a son of a king. He's a descendant of a king who was already in a questionable status because he wasn't, you know, completely of Jewish background, let's say, right? So what happens is the Rabbi Nassim's statement says the moment when they're the enemies of the Jewish people, now what does it mean the enemies of the Jewish people? We're talking about the Jewish people. And so it's a really funny, you know, euphemism or like a cloaked language so as not to offend the Jewish people. We're not going to talk about them as being their own worst enemies, but that's exactly what's happening here. So the point is, because the Jew, they flattered Agrippas, and by doing so, they incurred, according to the statement, they incurred a death, uh, they incurred, uh, not a death sentence, destruction, right? That there's a promise of, of comeuppance, but in a terrible, terrible, destructive kind of way, because they should never have been flattering Agrippas 
Antipas according to this. Meaning the praise that is due him um, as king is one thing. The fact that he himself was, you know, of a questionable status and questionable behavior really changes the whole, without the Gemara. Amar of Shum ben Chalafta, miyom shegavar agrofa shel chanupa. The time, from the time, from the day that there's a power of flattery, right? When flattery won, nit av two hadayanim v'nit kalkalua ma'asim. So from that day, judgment was corrupted and people's deeds were corrupted. There's a few different words in Hebrew here for corrupted. They were broken. And at that point, nobody can say from one to the other, my deeds are better than your deeds. Meaning everybody's walking around flattering everybody else and you no longer know what's true and what's not true. And I feel like I could go on about this for such a very long time, you don't want to hear it, right? But this idea that there's a corruption in flattery is, I think, very profound, very important. I think that, like, I think a lot of people kind of flatter others for the sake of, you know, not making waves or not ruffling people's feathers. I think we can all learn to be you know, polite and discreet and honorable without speaking flattery that is falsehood, right? There are ways to find a positive thing to say or something like that if you need to. That's not the same thing as flattery that doesn't belong. So my point is like, yeah, I think this kind of corruption is the downfall of a lot of things. So Rabbi Huda, who is of the West, meaning he's coming from Eretz Israel, he's coming from the land of Israel. It's not clear which person said the following statement. They say, it's, you're allowed to flatter the wicked people, namely in this world. Meaning, you're not, in the future, in the future that is to come, we have a verse from Yeshayel from the book of Isaiah, chapter 32, that the vile person will no longer be called generous and the, the um, what's the right translation here? The, somebody who is thuggy, I don't have a better word really, someone who's a thug will not be called noble, meaning we'll stop calling people by descriptions that are really not theirs. And therefore we can infer, right? The fact that you could say, we're going to stop doing that, it indicates that in this world we do seem to be doing that. I, you know, and I would say, I would wager that one of the reasons that we're going to allow flattery in this world is, of course, because, you know, if you're t- dealing with thugs, then that might be the best way to carry on, right? <laughs> you need to move, get away from them or whatever it's going to be. It doesn't necessarily mean you're flattering them for your own sake, I think, when you're dealing with somebody who himself already is a wicked person, as opposed to the flattery that I think happens, as I've already said, between regular people, where nobody's wicked, but the flattery itself is corruptive, corrosive, I guess. Rabbi Shimon ben um, so Rich Lucky says that you can prove this from here, <coughs> meaning this, this future, um, the future stoppage of flattery to wicked people. He's got a verse in not just Isaiah, but also in Genesis in Breshit, where Yaakov says to Esav, I've seen your face, like one of the angels, and you were pleased with me, meaning if your brother, whom you've been estranged from, compares you to an angel, then that is a very flattering pronouncement. And the implication, 
of the Gemara here is that, you know, Yaakov was flattering him rather than it being quite um, the actual honor that he, that he deserved. Okay, now the Gemara is going to bring him a Levi, meaning the statement by Reish Lakish about Yaakov is a counter to Rebbe Levi's position. The Amar Rebbe Levi, because what did he say? Rebbe Levi, Mashal Yaakov Esav. We have here, you know, this parable, a parable that lines up with Yaakov and Esav. What is it comparable to? So if you have one person invites another person home and then the guest realizes that the host wants to kill him, right? So what happens? He's immediately going to start flattering his host, right? Oh my goodness, this food is so wonderful, so delicious. I've never tasted this like this except for when I was in the king's house, right? And I've added in some colloquialisms here, but that's basically what the Gemara says in terms of what what kind of you know, shifting into flattery gears, so to speak, by the person who's now nervous to be a guest in this person's home. And then, And then what happens? Because he's invoked the name of the king, right? He's, oh my goodness, it's so delicious, I've eaten in the house of the king. Then this man, the host says, oh, he must know the king, I better not kill him, right? There's this, like, fear that kicks in, based on the flattery, but based on the flattery that brings him to a certain level of logic that goes beyond that, right? To say, again, you know, that the, that he's not going to, that, that the, the, by flattering him, he, the guest brings the host off of his killing spree, so to speak, or the one that didn't happen. Um, again, not because, not just because he's flattered, but because of the information that um, expression provided. So Rebelezer says that anybody who has flattery in him, which is an interesting expression to begin with, will bring anger or wrath to the world. As we have a verse, this is from the book of Job, literally says, you know, those with flattery in their hearts will bring af, anger, um, wrath, and not only that, but his prayers won't be heard. And this goes back to the same verse. Because they do not cry out. They meaning cry out in tefillah, in prayer, because he, God, will bind them. Um, point being here, you know, this compliment that it sounded like we that we were getting or hearing about in the Mishnah, I think it's pretty clear that at this point, this is not a compliment, meaning when a compliment is a matter of flattery and that is not the same genuine type of thing, then you're really in trouble. I Meaning everybody's in trouble. You're bringing corruption into the world. You're talking about, you know, who's inappropriate to, to get this kind of reward, whatever it's going to be. There's no real, um, there's nothing really positive here. I'm skipping just a few words because there's simanim here, right? The mnemonic that the Gemara uses to, the Tanaim perhaps even used to recite different portions of the text. And now we have Amar Belazar, Kol Adam Again, this statement of any person who has flattery in him. It says, even if it's a fetus in his mother's womb, you curse him, meaning this is a bad trait. 
another verse, this time from Mishle, that says he'll say to the wicked when you are righteous and then the people will curse him and the nations will, um, and likewise, from the nations, right? Meaning the point is that everyone will come against you um, if the only positive statements about you are all flattery. There is an undertow here of flattery being really false, right? False is what the person wants to hear, but there's no truth to it to the extent that it ends up being corrupting and p people lying to each other for the sake of people hearing what they want to hear is not, the Gemara makes it very clear that this is not the way to do it. So the Gemara says there's no cove in this word yikuvu that um, other than that which means curse, and then we have some proof text to show how that is the case. Um, okay, and I have uh, one more. Anybody who has flattery in him will fall into Gehinom. This is the, again, the Hebrew or Gemara term um, for, I suppose, for hell. It's translated always just as Gehenna. We've got a verse from Isaiah, Yeshayahu chapter 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, meaning that is like the definition of corruption to say that something that is good is bad and bad good. What is written afterwards? Meaning we've got another verse from Isaiah in that same chapter 5, meaning, so the tongue of fire will devour the straw and the chaff is consumed by the flame, meaning that everybody, all of these people who are calling the good bad and the bad good will end up being punished like flame eats straw, devour straw in, in Gehenna. Look at it goes on. There's still another case or few as we get to the end of, it's already on, it goes on to the next, um, onto the next daf as we finish the parak with other, I would say, ills of this issue of flattery. Um, but I think the interaction here between the Mishnah and the Gemara, Yerdena, as you've pointed out, is perhaps the most interesting thing here um, in terms of guess the generations, right? Like you could present it as such a straightforward compliment to to somebody who's in this, uh, you know, unusual circumstances, the king being in this position. And then the Gemara comes and says like, no, let's reread that a very, very different way. And historically, how that should be applied, I mean, I think that that's a complicated question. And I think that it's not so simple to say, it, it, very, sometimes we say the Gemara is giving us the interpretation of the Mishnah, and sure, there might be dispute, but like basically we're, they're getting into the, the weeds of what the Mishnah means. It's not so common, I don't think, that the Gemara really turns the Mishnah on its head, and I feel like the, the historical piece here is held in abeyance, um, because by reinterpreting it, the Gemara is giving a different historical comment than the Mishnah is making on the surface of it. Um, Okay, so we'll table it here. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell, tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.